Our sermon passage this morning continues on in the Gospel of Luke. We've heard already of uh, the birth of Jesus there in Bethlehem. We've seen the shepherds uh, have this announcement and see the arrival of Jesus into our world. And now we turn to eight days later when uh, Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated. So let's read together, Luke 2, 21 through 40. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people. The child's father and mother marveled at what had been said about him when Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we get a glimpse of who you are, that you show us what you're up to. And in seeing that, we catch a glimpse of who we are in you. The grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. So in these moments, as we pause to reflect on what's revealed about you and his arrival, move upon our hearts that we might love him all the more, that we would not just learn new information, but that we would be moved and centered on those people. Show us the beauty and majesty of Jesus. In his name we pray. I'm going to start by saying something, this is pretty rare in this day and age, something that I think we can all agree upon, that we live in a world where reputation is important. Reputation is important, right? Man's only as good as his word, as his word. We want a good name. Reputation is important. And maybe that's never been clearer in our world than it is right now. Because we live in a world full of what? Personal branding. You go on social media and you catch a glimpse of, uh, it, it's moved on. We, we, we used to say branding and we thought marketing materials like Tide. You know, Tide gets clothes clean. That's a branding. But we 
live in an age of personal branding. People spend time thinking, what do I want to be seen as? What kind of things do I want to post myself doing? Reputation is important. People make livings as social media experts. Folks that aren't influencers, they know how to work the system and they can make people influencers. Giving advice to companies and people. But that's not just individuals, even our church. Ever notice all of our stuff is the same color? We've got the same. It, it's because we did a, a, a branding detail thing. Like these are the colors we're going to use. We want to make sure as we're, we got a logo, different fonts. We want it to look uniform. We want it to look good. Why? Because well, in part, we want people to see our materials and go, that looks nice. We don't want it to, to be like, oh gosh, they really don't know what they're doing. We want a reputation. Respect. It spans our society. In our world, we want the best stuff. We want to be seen with the best people. And so we're, we're calculating who we spend time with. We want the best stuff. We want to be seen as winners, or at least we want people to think that we're winners, that we're the best. Like I said, reputation is very important. And we can agree on that. Now I'm going to say something that maybe everybody won't agree with, but stick with me. In a world where reputation is important, God is really bad at reputation management. He's terrible. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a preacher say that God's bad at something, but he is. God's really bad at all the ways we measure reputation management and building an, an image. God is, is, is bad at it. And if that's clear anywhere, it's clear at Christmas. Now think about it. What we've just read in Luke chapter 2. Scripture tells us that God has come to earth in Jesus Christ, that the eternal Son of God has taken to Himself a human nature. God has become flesh. And God, the God of all creation, in doing this, He can pick anywhere, y'all. Any time in history, any place in the world. He can do this however He wants to. And so when He comes, how does He do it? Well, let's think about His mom. Who's his mom? Virgin Mary. We talked about her last week quite a bit, but according to the custom of the time, she would have been a young teenager, maybe as young as 12. We know she was extremely poor. You notice when she and Joseph go to the temple to dedicate Jesus, it talks about the custom of the law and offering two pigeons or a dove. That special allocation was for people who couldn't afford a lamb for the sacrifices. It was a special uh, allowance in the law for people who did not have the means to bring a lamb. They could bring these birds for the offering. But if they did that, it meant that they were extremely poor. So she's young. She's poor. There's no guest room available to them. So the first bed that the baby Jesus lays in, God in the flesh, his first night is spent in a feeding trough. In the time of Jesus, and in their own time, honestly, if I want to impress you, I tell you about my parents. Or I tell you about somebody I'm connected to. I, I've mentioned it a number of times when I got my Ancestry.com Who Long Trial, I went through and I was looking for some historical figure 14 generations back, King Henry VIII. And he was a scoundrel, but, you know, I got that. I've probably told everybody in here like six times about King Henry VIII. I'm the 14th great-grandson. Of an illegitimate son. But anyway, but if I want to impress you, I tell you that story. 
right? I don't tell you about random great-grandpa nobody's ever heard of. And in that world, and in this one too, really, in a lot of ways, when you're born, the roadmap of your lives would have been laid out before you lived it. You took on the profession that whatever your dad did is what you did. Or whatever your mom did, it's what you learned, that's what you did. There wasn't like going off to college and finding a career path and fulfilling your whatever. You, your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. There wasn't much social climbing. If you were born into what we would call a low-class family, it's where you stayed. The poor stayed poor. So, if God is trying to impress anybody in the ancient world, he missed the mark big time. Nameless woman from a small town, I caught her last week, Mary from Spivey's Corner. Nazareth was like 500 people. Poor, without any clout. Or think about, so that's his mom, think about the shepherds who we read about. Now at this time, now if you go back into the Old Testament, the shepherds were a good deal. Abraham was a shepherd. Shepherd could be seen as somebody who was respected. God's likened to a shepherd over and over again. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And that's not the only place it happens. But by the time of Jesus, society had begun to, sh began to shift a little bit. It was less uh, agrarian. It was less like a, a, the people who actually mattered had moved into cities. And so at the time of Jesus, shepherds were the absolute bottom rung of society. Now think about it. Just because of the nature of their job, they stayed apart from everybody else. They lived with their sheep. And when they came into town, they were kind of like, you stayed away from the shepherds. Why? Because they smelled like their sheep. They stunk. <laughs> and so they'd come into town and be like, okay, we've got to stay away from them. It's a job that nobody wanted. And it's a job you wouldn't take unless you had to. Little boys and little girls didn't dream of growing up and becoming shepherds. They were social outcasts. If you were a shepherd, you were deprived of any kind of civil rights. You weren't allowed to, to serve in civil office. So you couldn't be voted to the council or whatever. And you weren't allowed to uh, testify in court. You were so distrusted that you could not be called as a witness in court. And at, at night, these aren't just shepherds. These are the, This is the night shift. This is the graveyard shift that's out there. And on that night, most of the shepherds who heard this would have been women and girls who were treated as a little more than property. So again, if God was trying to impress the world, he missed the mark. Or think about what we read here when, when they arrived at the temple. Who does Jesus encounter? Simeon and Anna. They meet the infant Jesus in the temple. Now Simeon may have been a priest. We don't know. It doesn't say, but you know, it talks about him holding Jesus and blessing him. He may have been the priest on duty that day, actually. But Simeon and Anna, they're elderly. They're people who have lived long lives. And in Anna's case, a disappointing one. Full of longing. Anna had been a widow for decades. Seemingly forgotten. Spends all her days at the temple. Simeon and Anna, they're not well-networked movers and shakers. Anna spent most of her time praying, as I said. It's not a big difference maker. She's not going to win Women of the Year in Jerusalem. So 
So this is his crew, guys. This is what I'm talking about. This is the crew that Jesus picked to arrive here in the world. A young teenage mother, a bunch of social outcast shepherds, and a couple of elderly folks that hung out at church all day. This is who he picked to, to run with. Look, I'm not Jesus, and guys, that's the best news in the world. I'm not Jesus. But if I were, if I were God coming to the earth, I would not do it this way. I've read all the leadership books. This is bad this is a bad approach. This is not a good plan. At least, you know, the way we judge plans. I would not have come as a baby. I wouldn't have shown up as a baby. I would have shown up as a strong, powerful warrior. I would not have gone to the small town of Bethlehem and then the even smaller town of Nazareth to grow up. I would have gone straight to Rome. And in the sight of everybody, I would have marched right into Caesar's palace, not in Las Vegas, but in Rome, the actual real one. I would have marched right up to Caesar himself and demanded he bow at my feet and recognize who I am. And then I would have published in newspapers or whatever they had at the time, King's here, come and bow at your feet. And if I were God, I would not have picked young Mary to be my mother. I would not have been picking up shepherds who couldn't testify in court to be the first witnesses of my birth. Now, I wouldn't have picked Simeon and Anna to be the people who greeted me at my first trip to the temple. This is why I say that God is bad at reputation management. If you want a big name, if you want respect in this world, you don't show up as the son of a 12-year-old. You don't announce the birth to shepherds. You don't go to the elderly and the unimportant. And so, we have to ask the question here, why? Why is God bad at reputation management? Because it's either that he doesn't give it, it just does not get it. And he's like fumbled into this world and it just does not get how it works. Or it's because something else is much more important. And that's what it is. God's bad at reputation management because something is far more important to him. God's not unaware of how this looks as he's coming into our world. He does all of this on purpose. And if I may steal from my sermon a little bit later, God's not unaware of what it looks like when he deals and operates and identifies with us. He's not unaware of how foolish we can be. He knows. He's not unaware. But he did all of this on purpose. He enters into the poverty of the human condition on purpose. He invites the outcast shepherds to witness his birth on purpose. He goes to the elderly and forgotten on purpose. Why? Because he has not come to build a reputation. He doesn't care about that. He's come to rescue. And whatever it costs, whatever it takes, for God to win back his creation to himself, whatever hurdles he has to jump over, mountains he has to climb, Valleys he has to descend into, whatever he has to take on, that's what he's going to do. If he had come to march into Caesar's palace as a strong man, the Marys of the world would have wondered, is he for me? If he had arrived and it was the most important people in Jerusalem that the angels appeared to and said, come and see this baby, the shepherds would have wondered, is this for me? If he had gone to the temple on the day when he could assure the high priest, the very important guy was going to be there, Simeon and Anna would have wondered, is this for me? But if we see him come that way, we can know, yes, Christmas, what this means, the arrival of God into our world to rescue is not just for the important, it's not just for people who have jumped high enough for God to notice them, it is for us. 
He's come to rescue. He's come for the world, the, the, the people that the world has forgotten, the ones that everyone overlooks. He's come to the ones who are insignificant, who don't factor into the equations of people with power. And because we see him come to us in this way, this, this way that the world considers so humiliating, we can never be sure the lengths or the depths or the self-humiliation that he will descend into in his wild pursuit of us. There are no depths so low that he will not go to show us his grace. There's no darkness in our hearts that's so dark that his light cannot shine. There's no sin so big that his grace cannot forgive. There's no wickedness in you that is so deep that he cannot heal. So what we celebrate at Christmas is that our God loves us so much that he would pursue us in this ludicrous way, throwing off every idea of good reputation to chase after us, to save us from ourselves and from ways of living that only lead to destruction. Now if we keep reading on, we'll see that Jesus will go even further than this passage we've read tonight. It's not just uh, he, he, he suffers a little bit of social humiliation as a baby. We'll see that years later he gets a bad reputation because he keeps offering grace to the wrong sorts of people. He keeps winding up in social situations where he stops to have conversations with people he's not supposed to. Looking them in the eye, maybe for the first time. Treating them with dignity and respect. So much so that in the midst of his life, in, in God in the flesh, in the midst of this world, Jesus' reputation with the religious and with the important people was that he was a glutton and a drunkard. He hung out so much <laughs> with the so-called wrong kind of people that they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. That was his reputation. Jesus keeps touching people. That's no small thing in our world. Especially, I think, the last two years we've We've, we've seen how much maybe we took for granted physical touch as something that human beings we need. And when Jesus arrived with God in the flesh in this world, he keeps touching the wrong people. He keeps touching people with infectious diseases, people he's supposed to stay away from. He spends time with children and with women, and he declares their worth in a world that didn't recognize him. And he gathers around him followers that aren't the best in the bride. He didn't gather a bunch of Harvard and Yale graduates. And then what we celebrate at Easter, he's finally arrested as a criminal? God in the flesh, arrested as a criminal, and he's put on trial by a corrupt justice system that leads to death on a cross. And right there, he takes on, he absorbs, in a sense, the evil of our world and the wrath of God against our sin. He's scorned, forsaken, he suffers and dies, but three days later, he bursts forth from his grave and he declares that in his death, the power of death is gutted and that death itself is defeated. Jesus faces rejection. He faces death. He faces ridicule. Why? Why does he face these things? Because we face death. Because we face rejection. Because we, in our lives, face ridicule. And Jesus, God, has become one of us. Why scripture calls him Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is not just God out there. He's not God far away. He's God with us and God for us. And so, in Jesus, the 12-year-old virgin girl becomes what? The mother of God. The one who knew the score, who broke out in song with the child in her womb, which we looked at last week. Mary, so forgettable in this world, becomes maybe the greatest example of what it means for us to bear Jesus within us and to the world around us. 
In Jesus, insignificant shepherds become some of the first announcers of the good news of his birth. And these women and these men and these boys and these girls who were looked down on, who were not even trusted in this world to testify in court, they become the people who are the first witnesses to God's arrival. They are transformed in that moment by the greater word. And in Jesus, Simeon and Anna, they lived out the truth of their names. And here, let me explain what I mean. Here's what I mean. Simeon's name literally means God hears me. God hears me. This old man, Simeon, he was named for one of his ancient ancestors that we meet way back in Genesis 29. In Genesis 29, there's a woman named Leah, and she finds herself in the middle of this impossibly difficult uh, family situation. The man she's married to doesn't love her. He treats her more like a commodity than a human being, and she seems like a side character in her own story existing on the edges of her own life. Yet when she gives birth to her second son, she names him Simeon. And she says this, quote, because the Lord has heard that I was not loved, he gave me this child. She named her son in faith, that the indifferent disregard of those around her was not the final word about her, that the mistreatment of, of her by her husband was not the ultimate thing about who she was. God hears me. And Anna, her name means this, God has shown me grace. God has shown me grace. It's a name that draws back to the Old Testament too, to a woman named Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, who we meet way back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She prayed desperately to God for a child, and she was given a son. And her name meant God has shown me Simeon, God has heard me. Anna, God has shown me grace. And Jesus, the promise that had been embedded in their names that they had not probably experienced in their lifetimes are fulfilled. So in Jesus, all these insignificant people, so easily overlooked, forgotten by our world, are swept up into the story of God's redemption, and their insignificant stories are filled with meaning. And right here in 2021 in Dunn, North Carolina, however many thousand miles removed from them, we're speaking their names. We're telling their stories. We're not talking about the seemingly insignificant people that lived in Jerusalem, that had the name in the marquees or whatever. We're talking about the people that God came to. So maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking, or you've thought, that this exists somewhere in your heart, because I think in this life we never get rid of it. You're thinking, you, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know the things I've thought. You don't know the things I've said. You don't know how many times I've embarrassed myself and my family. I don't have a cool name that means something like Simeon or Anna. But hear me clearly. Just as sure as the 12-year-old Virgin Mary, the shepherds watching the flocks by night, Simeon and Anna praying with longing in the temple, this Jesus is for you. Jesus in the manger, Jesus becoming one of us, Jesus on the cross taking your sin into his body, Jesus resurrected from the dead, declaring death and sin are not the final word. This is your Jesus come for you. So this Christmas, as we're looking forward to this week that's going to be busy and stressful and fun and all the things mixed together, let's attend to our hearts. Let's turn away from the lies of this world whether we think we're insignificant because the world says we're insignificant, or we, if we think we're significant because we've achieved this, this thing or that, 
Toss that away, guys. Toss it away. Because in Jesus, we have a significance we can never earn. We have a place in God's story that we can never gain by ourselves. I say this to you, whether you've followed him for a long time or whether you don't have a clue what you think about God, whether you have a terrible track record or you've done pretty good in your life, Jesus is for you. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the significance of Jesus. I thank you that you are terrible at reputation management. Because if you cared about reputation, you probably wouldn't have found me. But you care far more about me finding your love than you do about your reputation. And I thank you, thank you, thank you for that. I thank you that's true not just of me, but of everybody in here and everybody who's worshiping with us online and everybody who will hear this later. And I pray as we live in this world that doesn't operate according to the standards of your love and your kindness, who doesn't live as if you are a king, I pray that your love would continue to break into our hearts, to bend us out from ourselves.